This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk AS, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. Once again, I'm James Bannister. And I'm Owen Phillips. In today's episode, we're going to focus on early intensive treatment. We'll look at what the guidelines say on this matter, the short and long-term outcomes of early intensive treatment, and the consequences that can occur when treatment escalation is delayed. This week, we'll be speaking to Professor Tina Vilsbol at the Steno Diabetes Centre Copenhagen to talk about her experience of implementing early intensive treatment in the clinic. As always, do feel free to skip ahead to this expert interview if you are very familiar with this topic. In the previous episode, we spoke about the importance of individualising targets for people with diabetes. However, once we've set this target, how do we reach it in a timely manner? The EASD ADA guidelines recommend reviewing people with diabetes every three months. Where patients present with an HbA1c that is 17 millimoles per mole or 1.5% or higher from their target, the guidelines say to jump straight to dual therapy. And where patients present at least 22 millimoles per mole or 2% above their target, to initiate with a GLP-1 receptor agonist plus insulin. It's also worth noting that in the 2019 update to the 2018 guidelines published by Buzetal last December, the authors now suggest that providers should engage in shared decision-making around initial combination therapy. This was influenced in part due to the VERIFY trial, which looked at treatment failure and initial treatment regimens. Failure was defined as an HbA1c rising to 53 millimoles per mole or above. This trial found that the initial combination of bilzegliptin and metformin led to a lower rate of treatment failure compared to either metformin alone or the sequential addition of metformin and bilzegliptin. So why is early intensive treatment recommended? As discussed in the last episode, poor glycemic control is associated with increased risk of cardiovascular disease later in life. In his 2014 review, Merlin Thomas described this effect as metabolic memory, or the legacy effect. He explains that even after glycemic control has been achieved and maintained for many years, it appears hard to undo the damage that was caused during the period where control was not yet established. Essentially, the longer someone is off-target, the more at risk they are of developing poorer outcomes later on down the line. So the earlier you can support a person with diabetes in reaching the target, the better. There's a lot of evidence supporting this legacy effect. In March 2019, Nida Leterapong et al. published the results of their real-world study in diabetes care. The results showed that patients who took over a year to achieve an HbA1c target below 48 millimoles per mole were at significantly increased risk of micro- and macrovascular outcomes when compared to those who reached this target within a year. Importantly, the study also concluded that longer periods of exposure to HbA1c above 53 millimoles per mole were associated with increased mortality risk. This built on the findings of Paul et al. in 2015, who demonstrated that a one-year delay in intensification caused a 62% higher risk of cardiovascular outcomes, including myocardial infarction, stroke and heart failure. Similarly, the 10-year outcomes data for the VADT trial demonstrated that a 17% relative risk reduction for cardiovascular disease was associated with intensive therapy compared to standard care, although it is worth noting that the 15-year follow-up results saw this drop to a statistically non-significant 12% at the 15-year mark. These studies create an onus for rapid, early, intensive treatment. However, as we covered last year, 
Early intensive treatment isn't always as simple as it seems on paper due to clinical inertia. As a recap for our regular listeners, or as an introduction for our first-timers, clinical inertia is defined as failure to initiate or intensify therapy despite an inadequate treatment response. In Kunti's 2017 systematic review, he concluded that clinical inertia in the management of hyperglycemia in patients with type 2 diabetes is a major concern. If you want to find out more about this topic, please do revisit the clinical inertia episode. So if the evidence shows how vital it is to establish early glycemic control, why is clinical inertia so prevalent? As we covered last year, there can be several causes of clinical inertia. Some patients regard escalation as a failure on their part and prefer to try and establish control through lifestyle changes before introducing further medicine. Others fear injections and or needles, believing them to be complex and painful. For others, the reluctancy is through concerns surrounding side effects such as weight gain or hypoglycemia. As well as clinical inertia, Kunti attributes non-adherence as a contributing factor for suboptimal glycemic control in clinical practice. So it's key that we work with our patients to overcome their concerns in regard to escalation and remind them of the importance of adherence in order to support them in reaching their individualised targets within a year from diagnosis. So overall, we've discussed how early intensive therapy is key to improving long-term outcomes. But there are barriers that exist that makes what seems simple on paper rather more complex in a clinical setting. Today we're joined by Professor Tina Vilsbol, who is going to speak to us about their experience with early escalation of treatment and offer some tips to ensure success in everyday practice. Thanks for joining us today. So studies have shown that not establishing glycemic control within one year from diagnosis with diabetes can lead to an increase in cardiovascular risk later down the line. In your experience, what barriers exist in the clinic to prevent early glycemic control? Well, first of all, the results we have today, I find really, really interesting. They are great to see, and I'm not really surprised about it because I think that uh, going aggressive early or getting the patients to control as fast as possible after they're diagnosed is really beneficial. Patients are indeed, or most of them, very motivated for getting uh, to target when, when they're just diagnosed. The the barriers that may exist and do exist, I think, in many countries is that many patients do not really understand type 2 diabetes is a serious disease. Uh, they might not go to the doctor as the doctor suggests. A lot of the treatment in early diabetes is by the GPs uh, who are really good, but they also have some limitations in respect to knowing everything from infertility to dementia and and treating type 2 diabetes is just one out of many things. So, and, and a lot of things have happened within the treatment of type 2 diabetes the, the recent years and indeed uh, the last five or six years. So, so I think there are, you know, some, some barriers, uh, both from the healthcare providers, but also it, to some extent for the patients. If we take the health uh, care providers first, they need to do modern diabetology. They need to, to you know, be engaged about having the patient sent to a dietitian, do exercise, have a setup where they can actually treat the patient with multiple drugs at, at an early point. And with respect to the type 2 diabetic patients, they have to understand that type 2 diabetes is actually a dangerous disease. 
that we have to use a lot of drugs um, and lifestyle interventions to to get the patient to target and and it's not just type two diabetes; it is a dangerous disease. And and our challenge is that we want to give uh, drugs that you know might be expensive in in many countries and for many patients that might actually have some side effects. Um, and that is for a dif- disease that the patients do actually not really feel in, in everyday life. So yes, I think there are several barriers, but uh, what I use myself in the clinic is to spend a lot of time educating the patients and I'll do my, be- and I do my very best in, in also providing all healthcare providers, including the GPs who are often close to the patients uh, in, right after they're diagnosed to understand all the really, you know, evidence-based knowledge we have today um, and to use it in the patient and to not be too reluctant in adding new drugs at an early point of view. Um, and we know by now that if you're a di- type 2 diabetic patient who has cardiovascular disease, it is extraordinarily important to to treat them with especially SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 receptor agonists, the numbers needed to treat are really, really low. So the evidence is there. We just need the, um, to implement it to all patients with type 2 diabetes. Thank you so much. And what do you do in the clinic to try and overcome these barriers? Do you have any tips that you can provide to our listeners? I think one of the really, really important things to overcome the barriers is to 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 understand uh, what we what we actually have of knowledge today within the field of diabetes, but we also need more knowledge. We need even more science in the future uh, so we can individualize the treatment. But I think one of the barriers is indeed the knowledge. Also, many patients are worried about going on the needle. Um, you know, insulin is a really good treatment at the right time for the right patient. That is also a barrier. Usually I say that the injection barrier is by the doctor and not by the patient. And and today we, we do not only have insulin in needles, we also have GLP-1 receptor agonist in the needles. <laughs> and those compounds are really efficacious in body weight, glycemic control, blood pressure, liver enzymes. And, and it's important with education that the GPs and the patients know that, that it is different from insulin and it isn't efficacious. Thanks so much. And in terms of adherence, is poor adherence a common problem amongst your patients? And if so, what do you do to overcome it? I think that adherence is still a big problem. We we know that it has been a problem for decades, uh, especially when we used a lot of SU to patients with type 2 diabetes because they got hypoglycemia out of that. And one of the things that the patients are really, really worried about is uh, hypoglycemia. Also, another ad- um, problem with with respect to adherence is that when using SU, TCD, or insulin, like the more old-fashioned uh, glucose-lowering drugs, um, patients did increase their body weight indeed. And I think modern diabetology, which indeed does uh, use metformin, SGLT2, and DLP1s, make actually adherence a smaller problem. If you spend time explaining the patients what or why you want to give these compounds, tell them how they work, then my clear impression is that the adherence, the problems with adherence decline with with years or, or you know, uh, because 
um, they are so efficacious not only to you know preventing cardiovascular disease or further development of cardiovascular disease, but also in respect to decreasing body weight, decreasing glucose, and may pay, many patients can actually see wow their their um, GL, no their LDL cholesterol and and their blood pressure also decrease uh, with respect to the GLP one receptor agonist, and also with their GLT twos, patients lose weight, and that is really something that means a lot to our patients with type 2 diabetes. And I'm sure that that it will or it does improve adherence. And, and we know from studies with both SGLT2s and GLP1s that, that the quality of life evaluated by SF36 in, in, in big trials actually show that, that it is uh, correlated to improved uh, quality of life. So I think that's important to, to amongst many patients, not only my patients, but, but patients worldwide. Thank you once again. And finally, is the legacy effect something that you discuss with your patients? If so, what level of information do you provide them with? And do you have any tips for our listeners on how to discuss this with their patients? I do indeed think that the legacy effect is important, and it is something that I do discuss with my patients because we have known for a long time that dysglycemia or hyperglycemia um, is correlated to microvascular complications. And I use that when I explain the patients why we have to screen them from microvascular complications. And, and I tell them that the better they are in respect to uh, glycemic control, um, the, the better life story of their diabetes they, they will have, I mean, at least from an overall um, interpretation. And now we also have the data from cardiovascular disease, and we've had that from many of the huge trials, the Steno2 trial and the VADT and so on are trials looking into that. And, and we also know in respect to, for example, body weight, that those who lose a lot of body, uh, a lot of kilos in the beginning, they actually, when you look at two or three years after their body weight loss, there is a higher chance of those to actually maintain their body weight uh, at, at a lower level. So yes, I do indeed use um, uh, a discussion about legacy effect in my patients. And I will, with, with the recent paper in, in diabetes care, I will indeed have more evidence uh, from, a, from a very large trial where it has been evaluated that patients um, after diagnosed or immediately after diagnosed who get in a good shape um, are, it, that it is important. Then you can say, we should diagnose patients with type 2 diabetes as early as possible. And I think that is one of the things that has also changed the last 10 years, that we should help each other to, to get to to have our patients diagnosed as, as soon as possible. I spend a lot of time telling my patients to have their children tested if they're obese and so on. So, so we find the patients with diabetes, treat them as good as possible, as early as possible to avoid um, too many side effects. Oh, no, not side effects, but complications. Thanks again for all your time. This brings us to the end of today's time. To summarize, guidelines recommend reviewing people with diabetes every three months and to consider adding an additional agent if they're not yet on target. Even just one year's delay in establishing glycemic control can lead to increased lifetime risk of poor outcomes, so it's essential to work together with patients and provide them with the tools and support they need to achieve individual targets in a timely manner. 
If you'd like to hear more from us at Diabetes Knowledge and Practice, you can subscribe to the podcast using your favourite app. If you found the episode useful, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or tweet us at DKI Practice. Thank you for joining and we'll see you again to discuss lifestyle interventions and their role in diabetes management.